for Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, I'm Nick Hennon, and this is SciVibe. Pacific Northwest National Laboratory remembers 9-11. This, Justin, you are looking at obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports that a plane has crashed into one of the towers. I looked up, and all of a sudden it smashed right dead into the center of the World Trade Center. Okay, you're quite the same thing. Yes. The cop said it's not answering. Not appear that there's any kind of a, an effort up there yet. Yeah, now remember, oh my God. That looks like a second plane. Yeah. Just, uh, I honestly, uh, just want to let you know, I love you and the girls. Tell my mom to, uh, we're going down to that trade set the second plane. They just crashed into that building. Oh my goodness. We're looking at a live picture from Washington. There is smoke pouring out of the Pentagon. World Trade Center 1, and it's not was. I am here, and I'm stuck right now. What do you see around you? I'm stuck on the 86th floor. A fire door has trapped us. Debris has fallen around us. This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. You can see the firemen assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers. A huge explosion now, raining debris on all of us. Large fire at the Pentagon. The Pentagon has been evacuated. And there, as you can see, it's the second tower, the front tower, the top portion of which is collapsing. Good Lord. There are no words. Today, we've had a national tragedy. Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. Pacific Northwest National Laboratory's Senior Public Affairs Advisor, Greg Kohler. I was here at PNNL on September 11th. What a terrible day. It was a shock to most of us. It happened early in the morning before most of us had arrived for work, but when we did, everything had come to a stop. And a little later that morning, most staff were sent home. Other staff were on travel all over the country in the world actually and couldn't fly home as all air travel was grounded i had one good friend who was in detroit and he had to wait for a few days to secure a rental car and then drove all the way back to the tri-cities in the lab from there 9-11 was a catalyst for change in many respects pnl was always a national and world leader in national security research and development but things really took off after 9-11 after that pnl was at the forefront of creating so many security solutions particularly as it related to Homeland Security. Welcome to a special edition of SciVibe, as we remember September 11th. Science, technology, scientific discovery. This is SciVibe. Our first guest today was Director of Homeland Security during 9-11 and former Director of PNNL, Mike Kluse. Mike, welcome to the show. And uh, Nick, thanks. Thank you. I have a great deal of respect for what you do and, and what you've done, and uh, I'm just so glad you're here. Same here, Nick, and I appreciate you guys reaching out to me. Uh, 9-11 is a really important event for not just the nation, but it was really transformative for PNNL as well. Tell us about your time at PNNL. So I've had a long career with PNNL, nearly 19 years in leadership roles, particularly in national security. In 1997, I moved out to Pacific Northwest National Laboratory as the Director of National Security, and I held that position for about 10 years until uh, about 2007 when I became the Director of the Laboratory. Wonderful. Tell me, what was it like for you as you know, head of the National Security Directorate on that fateful day? I was actually in Washington, D.C. I had a series of meetings 
set up across the Department of Energy, and one in particular with DOE's Office of Intelligence. I was on my way to the Forstall building in D.C. and didn't realize that I was one of the last several metro trains through the Pentagon on my way to, to DOE that fateful morning. When I arrived at the Office of Intelligence, the first plane that hit the first tower, at that point, there was a lot of speculation as to what was going on. And uh, as I entered the SCIF, where the Office of Intelligence is located, the second tower was hit. And at that point, it was pretty clear that we had a terrorist activity on our hands. The Forstall building went into a high security mode. The director of the Office of Intelligence at the time, Larry Sanchez, invited me to stay with him in the SCIF to continue to kind of ride out the events of the day. So it was intense at that point in time. Lots of security people running around the building trying to be sure it was secure, trying to locate visitors. After that, we basically spent time in the skiff trying to understand what had happened and what this would mean for our nation. So we all knew that things were going to change in the national security and the homeland security front dramatically. Yeah, boy, you are so right about that. Did you at any point, you know, with this happening and watching the plane crash into the Pentagon, did you reflect on that and think about, wow, that was a close call? I mean, I could have. Did you ever think or consider in those moments about how lucky you were? I didn't think about that till after the fact. Yeah, I can see that. Because there was you know, so much information being digested. Right. When the plane attacked the Pentagon, I don't believe anybody in the Metro was ever in danger, although it would have been pretty darn chaotic to have been there at that time. But I did reflect on the fact that, boy, I, I came through there in a nick of time. Wow, yeah, that's lucky. What was it like, you know, immediately following the attack? Boy, the, the communication systems were all overloaded. It was impossible once I got out of the basement of the Forestall building to get out with my own cell phone and make a call because the, uh, the, the cell lines were totally jammed. Wow. So was that from everyone calling everyone at once? Yes. Yeah. And that must have been so chaotic and crazy feeling. Were you thinking in your mind, man, I got to get back to the lab? Or I want to reach my loved ones, or like, what was going through your mind? Well, my immediate thought was to get just up the street so I could make some calls back to both my wife and the office and assure them that everything was okay. And at the same time, we got into a mode of being sure we could locate anybody from the laboratory that was on travel, either in New York City or in D.C. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a lot. So did you have any sense at that time, like how you were going to get home? At that point, the airline system was shut down. So it was pretty clear I wasn't going to go home that evening. So there were some other P&L colleagues traveling as well. We got together and said, well, we're just going to have to sit tight here in D.C. until the airlines come back. And at that time, we didn't know how long that was going to be. So we had some dinner and called it a night. But I recall being awakened at some time in the middle of the night by the smell of smoke in the hotel room. And so I dashed up and uh, my fear was there was a fire in the hotel. So I did all the things that you're trained to do, right? Feel the door, be sure it's not hot. It wasn't. Look out in the hallway. I didn't see any, any issues there. And uh, what I realized was that the hotel was downwind from, from the Pentagon. The Pentagon was still on fire from the airplane having crashed into it. And that smoke was blowing into the hotel. And the, the odor was strong enough that it actually woke me up in the middle of the night. Yikes, that is scary. I mean, you already had a heck of a day. That had to feel kind of crazy. A little uh, anxious for a while there until I understood what was going on. I bet. So was there any concern in general just flying home after that? Um, there was some anxiety among most people getting on that plane. Of, you know, after watching what had happened several days before, 
you know, was this plane going to be safe? It was on people's minds. Hmm, I can only imagine. So what was it like then getting back to the lab? Well, it was pretty clear to me that things were going to change, particularly in the national security business, in, in a dramatic way. So one of the first things I did was I pulled together a number of the folks that were part of my leadership team to talk about what could P&L do to help with the challenges ahead. Knowing that we had been leaders in areas like data visualization and in radiation detection and, you know, the millimeter wave holographic imaging is now deployed at the airports. Knowing we had a lot of technology and a lot of expertise to offer, what could we do immediately to try to make a difference? That really, as I reflect back, that was the beginning of a major laboratory-directed research and development that we titled the Homeland Security Initiative. And that was a probably a five-plus-year initiative where we invested laboratory resources into further advancing our technology in, in data visualization and in radiation detection and in millimeter wave holographic imaging focused primarily on the national security and homeland security challenges. That's really awesome. Do you ever take time to reflect and just think about all that happened there and, uh, you know, the ways in which you played a role in the change in direction for the lab? Well, certainly every time I fly and I I go through the the millimeter wave scanner, I'm I'm proud of what we were able to do. And it's just a real sign of the contribution of P&L. You know, when I when I happen to be at one of the, you know, international seaports or go across a land border crossing in and out of the country, you know, I can see the, the radiation detectors that P&L developed and then deployed. And I brag about that when I, I'm with friends in that. <laughs> That's awesome. My organization was the developer and, and contributed significantly to the deployment of these technologies that are making the U.S. a, a safer place. So it's something that I, I, I think of pretty routinely. That's really great. Mike, is there anything else that I didn't ask that you want to talk about? Well, I would say that, you know, the accomplishments of PNL are the result of lots of great, dedicated, and talented scientists. This is nothing that, that I did. It's something that our teams of scientists who have dedicated their careers to their particular field were able to accomplish. You know, PNL started in 1965 trying to understand the impact of the plutonium production mission at Hanford on the environment and on people. And that fundamental science base that was developed back then was the same science base that we drew upon to develop things like radiation portal monitors. And so it's, it's just great to see a technology, a level of expertise that was developed for one particular reason being deployed for a totally different reason and making a significant impact on the security of the country. Yeah, that's so important. Wow. Well, listen, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Great. Thank you, Nick. And thanks for including me. I'm, I'm, I'm really honored that you reached out. Thank you. Mike, it was really my pleasure. Our next guest is Mike Mitchell. Mike was the Director of Homeland Security Programs at the National Security Directorate at PNNL. He also served as a key member of the White House's Homeland Security Transition Planning Office, whose primary mission was to create a national homeland security scientific research and development strategy. Mike, thank you for being here. Thank you very much, Nick. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Mike, what kind of research was done in homeland security at your time here at PNNL? 
probably the largest activity for the Border Patrol, which ultimately evolved into the Customs and Border Protection, was the nuclear detection of cargo coming across our borders, securing our borders. And that accelerated significantly post 9-11 and post the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. And, and that was putting in radiological and nuclear detection devices at every port of entry both land border and maritime border, as well as air border airports around the country. So you can imagine that was a very significant project. I was extremely proud of our research staff and how personal sacrifices that were being made to bring new technology to bear and work directly with both the DHS components as well um, the first responders, Steve Stein and Ann Lesperance, stood up the Northwest Regional Technology Center for Homeland Security, and they reached out to all Western states, first leadership in, in the first responder community to understand what the needs of the people on the ground who were securing our borders and, and securing the country, what their needs were so that we could bring that back to our technologists and explore different options for solving the needs of the country and the region. Hmm. Do you think about current threats today? I mean, is your mind still in that space? Yeah, I, I do. especially when there's a, a national or international event that occurs. It, you know, my time in Washington, D.C., and at the lab, you, you can't, I can't disconnect from that. My mind flashes back and it, you recognize the threats that we face on a daily basis and the work that's being done both from an R&D standpoint all the way through the operational deployment of technologies. And what are those next threats? You know, I'm reminded, maybe not every day, but I'm reminded pretty regularly. Well, I can certainly understand that. Why was PNNL such a great place to work? Oh, the people, you know, that was the number one reason I came to the laboratory. No, oh, that's so great. Mike, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show with us. Nick, thank you. It's, it's been an honor and, and a pleasure. Thank you. Our next guest, Kate Miller, a data scientist, and Russ Hafner, team leader of technical security solutions, both at PNNL, both of whom are STEM ambassadors for the lab. I want to welcome you to the show as we remember this important moment in history, that fateful day, September 11th. Thanks, Nick. Excited to be here. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here. All right. So, Kate, let's start with you. Tell me, where were you when you heard the news and did it affect your future lens into the world at all? Yeah, Nick, it really did. I was in high school. I was sitting in my car in traffic. I remember turning the radio on and, and hearing this chatter about this plane that had something had happened in New York. And I just sat there and listened to it for a few minutes. And I don't know, something struck me. And I, I kind of thought, you know, I, I should go home. I don't want to sit in traffic while this is happening. I don't know what's going on. And so I drove home. I did a U-turn and, and drove home and basically walked into my living room when the second plane hit the tower. I remember just standing there and I, I sat down and, and I, I watched TV for the next 12 hours, really. And so do you feel as if it did something to you in terms of your direction in life? Changed my life. Changed everything. This really brought everything home. It changed my priorities and it spooked me, to be perfectly honest. I, I felt really helpless at the time. I was, I, I grew up out here in Washington state. It was far away and I didn't have anything I could do to help. So I started shifting and started brainstorming how I could help. 
So I got out of high school early and decided rather than go straight to college, I was going to join the army and spent a few years in the army and actually got injured and got out and became a civilian again. And that that was a really challenging time for me because I went in with, with a really big goal. I wanted to change things. I wanted to do my part. I wanted to help. That's, that's, that's what I've always wanted to do. And then when I realized that that wasn't an avenue that I could be traveling anymore. I refocused towards government work. And I, I ultimately went to work for the government as a contractor and went overseas and continued doing the job that I wanted to do in a civilian capacity, which was protecting people that weren't in a position to protect themselves. Wow, that's really interesting and so moving how it changed your career path. Russ, what do you remember about that day? I heard it on the radio while I was driving and my jaw dropped. I couldn't believe what I was hearing in it. And as I got closer to work, I saw the traffic and I saw the people in the cars that were listening to the radios. And you could just tell it was wild to look around the traffic and see people's faces and realize they're feeling the same thing I'm feeling. I continued on to work. And in our cafeteria there, we had a bunch of big screen TVs. And I spent the day with pretty much the rest of the folks at the site watching TV and just shock and awe realizing the world has just changed forever. It sure did. Kate, can you tell me a bit about what a data analyst does and how is this important to protecting the security of our nation? So data analysts and data scientists specifically, they play a huge role. In today's world, information is at a scale that we can't even really comprehend right now. The, the world in 2001 versus the world in 2021 is very different. You know, information flows at such a high rate of speed, we can't even begin to comprehend it. So what, so what data analysts do really is, is to help answer those questions through working through that data and, and drawing insights from it. And what data scientists really do, which is what I do at the lab, is we take that vast amount of information and we leverage it to help humans and computers make decisions and draw insights from them. And that, that spans a, a wide array of, of spaces from you know, defense, emergency management, infrastructure, even cyberspace, computer-related things. We, we take big problems that, that are beyond the scope of human computational ability, and we find tools and solutions to solve those problems. Yeah, that's really great and such important work. Russ, what can you tell me about some of your roles at PNNL and how is your work important to national security? I support a, a number of projects at the lab dealing with sponsors like the Department of Energy and the D Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration. I work with the Department of Homeland Security and most lately projects with the Department of Defense. So all of these roles have an impact and are important to national security. But the one that's the most long-standing for me is the emergency response role a number of years of supporting disasters, including typhoons, hurricanes, wildfires, where I actually will deploy either close to the region or maybe from afar. But that's one of the things I really enjoy is the ability to feel like I'm making a difference in people's lives by helping them get back to normal. So it's been a very rewarding role for me at the lab. And I continue to work with FEMA and Department of Energy's Emergency Response Organization to help manage disasters as they occur. The second role that's been really fascinating for me and eye-opening is supporting the Office of Radiological Security within Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration. My role as a sustainability trainer enables me to be a part of a team that goes into developing countries where we work with law enforcement and regulatory authorities and we work with sites that have radiological material and we teach them how to protect those assets, those sources from terrorists and adversaries that might take that material and turn it into a dirty bomb. 
our job is to go in and, and bring all the knowledge and expertise we have in the United States for protecting sources and targets like that. And so I've been in over 30 countries doing workshops. And the thing that blows my mind, not only are they appreciative of us coming in and helping their countries, which also helps us as a country as well, because it continues to protect the United States, is to realize how grateful they are for our assistance. So I feel honored to be able to support and help, you know, countries around the world to protect their society from disasters and from, you know, terrorist attacks of any sort that are tied to radiological materials. Did either of you or do you ever think about how threats have changed since this big event? Every day. I think one of the biggest things that I look back on, and it's hard because we live in a, we live in a time now where there are adults who were born after 9-11. Like they don't know concept of what happened. And we, we really readjusted what our risk profile was as Americans in the continental U.S., at least, where danger was. You know, For a while after 9-11, people were scared. People were concerned that danger was around any corner because it could strike anywhere. And so I think as that's as the world has become a much more electronically focused area, you know, the internet is obviously much more of a impactful entity than, than it was before in 2001. We now have really shifted where our risk factors have come from. You know, wars are not so much fought with bullets and tanks and airplanes as much as they are fought in the digital space now. And that really changes where the risk comes from. But the risk is still very real and very dangerous. So compelling. Yeah, the internet has become such an amazing tool, but it also becomes a great weakness because you can get access to information you never had before. So while it is such a great benefit to society, it's also an evolving threat to the country and to the world that we work hard as a national lab to combat and not just to be reactive, to actually be strategic about it and start trying to get ahead of the curve and think about where the threats might be coming from in the future. And, you know, we don't have crystal ball. But all this data science and AI and machine learning opens up doors to understanding a lot of these digital threats in a way that we've never had access to before. That's so true. And one of the things that comes to mind for me as a prolific user of social media is misinformation, disinformation. And, you know, I was an early adopter and I remember being on sites long before Facebook or MySpace and wasn't really as present in the early days. It was really a way to connect with people. And so that evolved over time. And now, of course, it's a huge issue. And there's documentaries about it. And it's a lot of misunderstanding, I think. So, Kate, can you help us with that in terms of a threat? What types of misinformation or disinformation is most dangerous? Sure, Nick. Yeah, I think one of the most important statements that I can make about that is really describing the difference between misinformation and disinformation. The majority of people don't know that there's very much a difference. And so misinformation happens everywhere. You know, misinformation, as we are so ingrained in social media, as you stated, you know, people make mistakes. Humans mistype things. Humans forget details. We're not perfect and we make mistakes all the time. Uh, and oftentimes those mistakes aren't intentional. Those mistook details can become quasi-fact or, or incorrect facts in the world of social media. So if I say, you know, my aunt says that she saw something occur and it's happening now, but my aunt was mistaken, and I go on social media and I say, hey, you know what? Avoid this area of downtown New York on West 32nd because there's a fire, according to my aunt, and there isn't. Is that misinformation? That's exactly what I'm talking about. So misinformation is false information without intent. You're not putting that information out there to inconvenience someone's day. You're putting it out there because you believe it's true. And that is the really big determinant in what the difference between misinformation and disinformation is. 
So disinformation is misinformation with teeth. Disinformation is misinformation with intent. It is weaponized misinformation. And so the, the goal of disinformation is it's used to drive narratives or stir discourse. And it's used everywhere, especially in, in, the, in the current time that we work at, where the information landscape is really a, a battlefield separate from its own, where it's not about what is true, it's about what you can convince someone is true or what you can say to drive a narrative to accomplish your own gains. And that happens from interested parties, it happens from countries, really anyone with an agenda can use disinformation to drive that agenda to where they want it to be. And it blurs the lines between fact and fiction. And that is what is so dangerous. And it's one of the reasons why we focus so heavily on disinformation in the national security space is because it has a real identifiable damage to everyday occurrence. And, and that is in the space of public health, national defense, foreign relations. There are all sorts of spaces that you can apply this to. And it is, if you can think of it, it's being used nefariously. Right. And it's so complex. How do you best combat it? We focus heavily on working on establishing tools and methods and best practices to really identify what disinformation looks like. Then we can begin to tackle the question of, well, how do we combat it? Is there a counter narrative solution? Is there a mitigation as far as trying to get that bot network or that disinformation network offline or away from out of the public eye? There are numerous efforts that are being put forth to help combat that, but it is a difficult problem. And it's one of the reasons why national labs focus on it very heavily. Kate, in what ways do you hope to inspire other women to consider careers in national security? I mean, I think every area is somewhere that needs more, more women and minority groups in, in there and involved. And I will be the first to admit, I took a very convoluted road to get to where I am now. Uh, and it, it didn't involve data science at first. It didn't involve being the person I am right now. But I would encourage women and minority groups and, and anyone that feels like they're an outsider looking in to really think about what national security means to them. I think that people look at national security and they think of this big umbrella as, you know, defense and scary things. And there's an abundance of, of things that fall under that umbrella. And it matters to everybody from, you know, social issues to even climate and environmental issues. There are national security aspects of it that apply. And I think that every person, no matter what you look like, how you live your life, brings a unique experience and perspective to the table. I am not a traditional data scientist. I am not a traditional national security subject matter expert. I made a lot of decisions in life that led me onto this path because at somewhere deep within me, I had that need to be part of something bigger. And things change when you take that oath. You realize that you're, you're no longer that one person punching a time clock anymore. You are part of keeping an entire nation, maybe even an entire planet safe from certain things. It changes your perspective. And I would wager to bet that there is a significant number of women that have that feeling inside them. They want, they want to make that big change. And even if you're critical of some of the things that, that happen in this space, because this space is, is, has a lot of aspects to it, that is just as useful. We want that perspective. We want people with opinions. We want people to drive conversations. I, I would hope that that would inspire anyone that's interested in it to, to look at it as an option. What would you say to that young person listening right now? Can I do it? I would say you absolutely can. Live your life, make mistakes, learn from them. 
and and take those experiences and think about how you can apply them to to areas like this. That's so great, and I think we can all agree that that PNNL is a place for everyone. It really is. It really is. I've I've never met a, a more diverse group of people, uh, a fascinating diverse people. I agree with that exactly. Russ, why is PNNL such a great place for you to be? Great question. To me, PNNL is like a great big scientific sandbox. And the sand in the sandbox are all the challenges, all the chaos, all the things that are just discombobulated, disconnected, disjointed. And we get to be the kids building a big sand castle out of those problems and those challenges where we get to create solutions, sandcastle solutions across so many disciplines, dealing with so many sponsors and stakeholders and working with such a diversity, like you said, Kate, about the diverse group of people. I, I can't even imagine a place more fun to work. I love working at the lab. That's so great. Thank you both for taking time out of your day and coming on the show. Thank you so much for having us. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks for listening to SciVibe. We're dedicated to sharing the excitement of discovery. If you had an aha moment while listening to SciVibe, please share and subscribe.